There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Hey there. Well, I never like wasting a no-restraint podcast on multiple subjects since it's the only time I get to do free-flowing and, well, cite a number of sources in a long form. Can't really do that on my radio program, but there's just too many important things to talk about, and not all of them are political. I saw a great piece on El Gato Malo, which I guess is a Twitter user who wrote down that Scott Atlas has made a list of the 10 biggest lies that were told by the misinformation ministries during COVID. And so I thought I would share it with you. It's a, it's a good list. It covers spread and risk and mitigation and far-fetched pharma fables and all the other fabulism with which we have all become so unavoidably familiar. And indeed, these were all lies told by people who either knew better or should have known better. Every actual expert was sidelined, and the social contagion of panic took center stage as the drama kids played at being the science kids, and they took the world on the greatest pseudoscientific joyride in human history. The story overtook the science, and epigram shouted down epidemiology. A hundred years of evidence-based pandemic response programs were defenestrated and replaced with superstition, superstition-driven diktat that looked like doing something. And it has, predictably, fallen apart and is coming to be seen as the failure of nerve, failure of science, and failure of the Osh conformity test that it was. But that does not mean that it's over. What if embedded in all of this, perhaps one more lie, the greatest lie, the one lie to rule them all? This is the one that will come back to haunt us over and over if we don't call it out by name and lay plain its resounding lack of basis in fact. It's the lie they've been trying to sell us for decades and failing, or at least having only moderate successes and thus wreaking only moderate havoc. It's the one lie to rule them all, the one lie to rule us all, the truly big lie constituting a forest that has been lost for the trees, and perversely, therefore, winds of being reinforced by the very debate about the little lies. And that lie is this. Pandemics are dangerous to modern societies, because the fact is, they are not. Beyond very minor levels, It's been a hundred years since there was and never has been since then a dangerous global pandemic in the post-antibiotic era. There have barely been any of that even warranted notice and pretty much no one living can recollect a shred of the last one. And the odds on bet appear to be that had we not swerved around COVID as though it were a Tyrannosaurus Rex in the road instead of a squirrel, COVID would almost certainly not have been 
either. So let's unpack. As was the case in the Spanish flu, perhaps the last truly high excess death global pandemic to bedevil us, much of the damage was done by the horrible reactions, and the parallels may be more poignant than people realize. One of the enduring causes of fear during the 1918 flu was the way it seemed to be killing otherwise young and healthy people, especially soldiers, in a matter of days. They would be a bit sick and then suddenly die of massive organ failure and wet hemorrhagic lungs. The progression was incredibly fast, seemingly irreversible, and was stacking people who really had to have been at low risk in mortuaries like cordwood. This made risk, CFR and IFR look horrifying, and fear near universal. If it could do this to a soldier in his prime in a matter of days, every last one of us should be terrified. But this is simply not a realistic outcome. In a modern society, even pre-antibiotics, it basically doesn't happen. These are not the pre-sanitation, most people don't get enough calories days of the Black Death. Diseases that kill at high percentages tend not to spread because killing the host is evolutionary maladaptive. It's like trying to conquer the world by burning down your own house and car. Even the really nasty historical killers like smallpox were only infecting 400,000 people a year by the late 1800s, and excursions above one death per thousand a year population during outbreaks were very rare, not in spite of, but because the fatality rate was so high. Respiratory diseases are different and tend to spread far more. Fatality rates are low. That's what the Spanish flu CFR was always suspicious in this regard, and there may be a reason. There is actually quite a lot of convincing evidence that many of the young, healthy deaths in the Spanish flu were iatrogenic. This is a word that's going to come up a lot and a topic that's going to be a big field of debate around COVID going forward. It's probably one of the most important scientific questions in the world right now. So let's define it. Loosely put, iatrogenic death is when the doctor kills you. And there is a long and unpleasant history on that one, from Benjamin Rush bleeding George Washington to death, to killing witchy cats to stop a plague carried by the fleas of the very rats they were eating, to and especially the new wonder drugs that are poorly understood, but that rapidly go into widespread use. And one of those drugs was aspirin. Aspirin had just come into widespread availability in 1918, and Bayer was rushing it to market for the pandemic. It was the new wowie-zowie drug, and doctors, and especially militaries, all over the world fell in love with it. They prescribed it widely to those with Spanish flu, in doses ranging from 8 to 31 grams per day. Whoopsie. A typical aspirin today is 325 milligrams, and maximum dosing per days is 4 grams. A toxic dose is 200 to 300 milligrams of weight. That's about 20 grams for a 180-pound person. If you're going to die really, really fast, and there's not a damn thing anyone can do to stop it once you take that dose. This is why incredible caution should be exercised around large departures from tested and true medical practice and new pharma modalities and products. Stop me 
if any of this starts to sound familiar. The unprecedented overall mortality and the mortality rate among young adults during the 1918-19 influenza pandemic are incompletely understood. Deaths in the United States peaked with a sudden spike in October of 1918. Later, Wade Hampton Frost studied surveys of eight U.S. cities and found that for every 1,000 persons aged 25 to 29 years, 30% were infected with influenza virus and 1% died of pneumonia or influenza. This 3% case fatality rate has been called perhaps the most important unsolved mystery of the pandemic. This case fatality rate has never looked even remotely plausible for flu. You simply do not get a respiratory disease like that in a modern or possibly any society, especially not in young, healthy people. It's just not a thing. But widespread poisoning by well-meaning medical professionals who have no idea how dangerous the products and procedures they're playing with is. Official recommendations for aspirin were issued on 13th of September in 1918 by the U.S. Surgeon General, who stated aspirin had been used in foreign countries, apparently with much success in the relief of symptoms. And on the 5th of October, 1918, by the Journal of American Medical Association. Recommendations often suggested dose regimens that predisposed to toxicity as noted. At the U.S. Army camp with the highest mortality rate, doctors followed Osler's treatment recommendations, which included aspirin, ordering 100,000 tablets. Aspirin sales more than doubled between 1918 and 1920. Again, anyone starting to pick up a bit of a rhyme in the history here? Autopsy reports by pathologists of the day describe extremely wet, sometimes hemorrhagic lungs in early deaths. On the 23rd of September, 1918, at Camp Devons in Massachusetts, 12,604 soldiers had influenza and 727 had pneumonia. After examining the lungs of a dead soldier, Colonel Welch concluded, this must be some new kind of infection or plague. What struck E.R. LeCount, consulting pathologist to the U.S. Public Health Service, as most unusual was the amount of lung tissue, actually pneumonic, seemed too little in many cases to explain death by pneumonia. He saw a thin, watery, bloody liquid in the lung tissue, like the lungs of the drowned. And as ever, bigger hammer theory tends to rise to the fore and the terrible tenant of it's not working, so do it harder comes into play. Consider this quote from the HHS, which said, it is not some quaint delusion of doctors that wise men of modern medicine may exceed and no longer fall prey to. The exact mindset was a massive killer in COVID. The widespread rejoinder to COVID deaths are massively overcounted using an absurdist methodology and definitions is, oh yeah, well, then explain the excess deaths. But it's actually quite easy to do. They were, to a great extent, iatrogenic. It was not COVID that did this killing. It was COVID response and the derangement of medical and medical and social practice. Here's a clear and classic example from early COVID, ventilators. 
Vent early, vent hard was the suddenly ascendant treatment modality. It ran riot in New York and many other parts of the world. It was used not just to treat patients, but to protect doctors under the misbegotten theory that an intubated patient would not spread COVID and that doctors needed to be protected. There was a whole national campaign to build more ventilators with everything but Rosie the Riveter. Industries, even Tesla, diverted from what they were doing to make them. Patients were intubated when they should have not been. When this failed to work, they kept turning up the pressure on the vents. And this killed people wholesale. Certain internet felines were yowling about this back in April of 2020, including El Mal Gato. Here's an unsettling comparison. In New York City area, mortality rate for all COVID ICU patients was 78%. In Stockholm, the survival rate was over 80%. This is a staggering variance. The key difference? Ventilators. New York City used them on 85% of patients. Sweden used them sparingly. That's iatrogenic death. Once the Big Apple figured out that vents were killing people in droves and switched to proning as others had done, the death rate dropped. But an awful lot of people had lost their lives by then. And as in the Spanish flu, this high death rate was used as a pretext for more aggressive and ill-considered actions that drove more iatrogenic death. It's a vicious cycle. And once it gets going, it's self-feeding. Every time you inadvertently kill people out of ignorance or fear, it makes the purported pathogen look more deadly and drives you to new reactions and miscalibrations where you once more kill people. Lather, rinse, repeat. It's not like this was unknown or unknowable, but most countries just plain forgot and did the wrong thing despite what they knew. Sometimes failing the ash conformity test is fatal to those around you. But when it comes to medications and the free use of them, even off-label uses, really we need to start evaluating what we are going to accept and what we're going to refuse. Because now it's not just celebrities. Women around the country are going to great lengths to try and procure the liquid gold in their bottomless appetite to be thin. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the off-label use of Ozembic, a diabetes drug that helps users lose weight and is now being sold at med spas across the country. Take this story, for example. It's noon on a Wednesday when most people would be eating lunch, but not Kate Baroni, an Atlanta-based salon owner who is five feet one with blonde hair down to her waist. She recently got down to 90 pounds from a high of around 120 on semaglutide, the active ingredient in the blockbuster diabetes drug Ozempic. She said she's off the injections for now while she undergoes fertility treatment to freeze her eggs, but she can't wait to get back on the drug, which she says still has the lingering effect of suppressing her appetite. I feel like I'm a drug addict. I want to, like, relapse, she said, laughing. Barone is 37 and represents a new kind of Ozempic user who gets 
the drug off-label from a medical spa that also provides Botox, fillers, and hair loss treatments, taking the drug far away from its medical roots and deep into the cosmetic sphere. Ozempic, taken once a week as a shot in the arm, stomach, or thigh, was first approved by the FDA in 2017 to lower blood sugar in people with type 2 diabetes. But the drug came with an incredible side effect, rapid weight loss. In 2021, the FDA greenlit a higher-dose semaglutide product, Wigovi, made by the same Danish manufacturer, Novo Nordisk, as an obesity treatment. Meanwhile, over the past year, the world has watched as some of our most famous celebrities started to shrink. Khloe Kardashian, who once called herself the fat sister, now has abs. Rebel Wilson and Mindy Kaling, who for years have admitted to struggles with their weight, are suddenly the smallest they've ever been. While all credited their new shape to exercise and foods like grilled salmon, unfounded rumors on social media alleged that the real cause was Ozempic. TikTokers even claimed, with no proof, that semaglutide helped Kim Kardashian shed 16 pounds to fit into Marilyn Monroe's happy birthday dress for the Met Gala, although she told Vogue it was a sauna suit and strict eating regimen. As the rumors kept growing, Ozempic quickly became headline news as the magic bullet for getting skinny. Hollywood elites were outed for using it. So were rich people in the Hamptons and the tech world, including Elon Musk. Its use became so prevalent that last January, the New York Times heralded the rise of Ozempic face, experienced by those who've lost so much weight on the drug, they're now injecting filler to correct their facial aging and sagging. Ozempic and Wegovi, which come in the form of preloaded injection pens, both require a prescription. They're also not cheap. One Ozempic pen, which lasts about a month, costs around $1,000 before insurance. Wegovi is even more expensive, with prices starting at $1,300, and it isn't covered by most insurance plans. Neither is a problem for rich, connected people who can cajole a prescription out of doctors willing to figure out how to put the tab on their insurance or can just pay the price. So many in these circles are now on the drug that one New York socialite told me, Ozempic is old news. But that's not the case for this Kate Barone I was talking about, who feels as though she's just discovered liquid gold. She and untold numbers of women who work nine-to-five jobs but want to look like they spend all day at the gym are going a different route for their fix. Healthcare lawyer Harry Nelson says there are well over 100 businesses across the United States now peddling off-brand semaglutide. Most get the Nova Nordisk knockoff from compounding pharmacies, places that mix and combine active ingredients to create custom formulations. A quick online search pulls up promises for same-day prescriptions with no office visits needed. While none of this is illegal, medical experts question the ethics of the off-label boom. Medical spas, which sell Botox and fillers but are overseen by a physician, typically prescribe off-label semaglutide after a weight loss consultation. Clients pay about $300 to $600 a month for an off-brand prescription 
and within a week, the drug arrives at patients' homes, usually in the form of a vial and a syringe. And because many of these visits are done online, it's easy to get around the guidelines. One Midwest designer, who asked me not to say her name, said she was technically overweight at five foot seven and 190 pounds when she met with an obesity doctor over Zoom. The doctor mailed her a blood pressure cuff and a scale to check her weight on the call. But because she was never asked to show the reading on her scale, she lied and said she was 200 pounds, which pushed her into the obese range. The doctor prescribed her semaglutide, which has since helped her reach 140 pounds. This is what I used to weigh when I was in my 20s, the designer said. It's a miracle drug. It just falls off. An Atlanta-based licensed physician attendant who helps run a new chain of telehealth clinics called Regen MD, Heather McCarrow, said she's turned a small army of users onto the drug, including her mom, her stepmother, her nanny, her housekeeper, six of her best friends, her neighbor, her hairdresser, and a guy that sells diamonds that's our jeweler. I've just got 60-year-old women saying it saved their marriage, like literally they're having sex with their husband again for the first time in years, Macaro said. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Ayla Humphrey, a 27-year-old influencer in Atlanta, said the off-label semaglutide she obtained from Regen MD helped her fit back into her clothes after a breast augmentation followed by a family tragedy, landed her on the couch for weeks. The thought of food repulsed me, Humphrey told me about the effects of the drug. I'd have two or three bites of chips and salsa and be like, I don't want any more. She is now back to her pre-surgery clothes, size small. Elliot Campbell, the sales director for Regen MD and her boyfriend, McCarrow's boyfriend, says his clinics obtain off-brand semaglutide which he also calls a peptide therapy from four compounding pharmacies, including Pavilion Compounding Pharmacy in Atlanta. Compounding pharmacies serve an important function of converting medication for patients, say from a pill to a topical cream for a patient who can't swallow. The FDA allows compounders to sell their own formulations when there's a shortage of brand name drugs, including Wegovy which has been on the agency's short supply list since March of 2022. But an FDA press officer said that compounded drugs, since they're not FDA approved, pose a higher risk and should only be used to fulfill the needs of patients whose medical needs cannot be met by an FDA approved drug. Ozempic was approved by the FDA in 2017, but only as a diabetes drug. Medical experts that I talk to say they have no idea where compounding pharmacies get their semaglutide from. And after I asked a few compounding pharmacies where they get it, only one got back to me, Pavilion, which said 
All of the ingredients we use to compound are from FDA-registered and inspected CGMP-compliant state-licensed distributors. A spokesman for Norvo Nordisk, which holds the patent on the drug, firmly stated they're not the ones supplying semaglutide to compounders. Doctors caution that unless you're injecting brand name Ozempic or Wegovy, there's no way to know what you're putting in your body. Dr. Scott Isaacs, an Atlanta-based endocrinologist, wonders how off-label semaglutide is created. It's a very complex molecule, he says. It's not something that someone could just make or buy from India. Isaacs, who has two decades of experience in his field, said he has seen patients come into his Atlanta practice with mysterious pre-filled syringes. He said few have been trained on how to use the drug or even how to inject it. It's just sort of like, pay me the money and I'll write you the prescription. And very few of them are told about the fact that this is a long-term medication. If the drug is stopped, people gain the weight back and people don't know that. Dr. Dominica Rubino, an obesity doctor whose Virginia practice participated in a Wegovy study, says one representative from a compounding pharmacy even tried to get her to prescribe off-brand semaglutide to her patients. Ultimately, it's about greed, says Rubino of the off-brand compounding boom. It is absolute deception, and it's sad because it's ruining a lot of progress we've made in this field to help people with serious disease. Sarah Hoover, a socialite once called the fabulous first lady of New York's art scene, says she first started to wonder, what is everybody on, when she showed up at the CFDA Fashion Awards last November and noticed everyone was rail thin. The thing that startled me most at that event was how people that I suspected were on it due to rapid weight loss and a lot of industry chatter that they definitely were on it seemed to expect us all not to notice or to ask questions. Later that night, when Kim Kardashian won an innovation award for her loungewear line Skims, it's unclear what the innovation was, but words like inclusive and body positivity were thrown around, Hoover posted an Instagram story calling out Kardashian for what she thought was unethical, to lose a bunch of weight no matter how she lost it and continue pushing body positivity to the masses. She wondered what dystopian reality this would create, convincing people to inject God knows what to achieve a size zero. But to Elliot Campbell, Regen MD's sales director, this is not a dystopia. As his girlfriend Macaro, who helps run the clinics, puts it, we're not in the Ozempic business or the peptide business, we're in the hope and happiness business. It's also a multi-billion dollar enterprise, Campbell says, and they've been open only since August of last year. Campbell, who also runs Balanced Aesthetics Med Spa in Atlanta, spoke from Fort Lauderdale, where Regen MD just opened its third clinic, a fourth location in California is set to open. If my locations burned to the ground, I wouldn't care, jokes Campbell, because 90% of my business is conducted online. Campbell, who says he himself has tried semaglutide, adds that most of his clients come from word of mouth, and all it takes is for one client to attend a dinner party. And I'm not kidding you, 10 or 15 people that were at that dinner with them will call me that week. Ozempic and its active ingredient, semaglutide, are not without their drawbacks. 
For one, there's diarrhea, nausea, and vomiting, which one off-brand Ozempic user described me as a quick five-minute hangover. Another put it more bluntly. I would inject it Monday and feel like I was going to poop my pants until Wednesday. Plus, a recent study found that most people who stopped taking semaglutide gained back a majority of their weight within one year. Then the big one. Nova Nordisk warns that studies with rodents showed Ozempic can cause thyroid cancer. Maybe that's not a problem if you're hopping on it for a month or two like many of the users I spoke to, but perhaps it's a different story if you're on it for life as drug makers and regulators now recommend for patients with diabetes and obesity, including children. One out of every five kids in the U.S. is affected by obesity. The FDA just approved Wegovy for kids 12 and up diagnosed with the condition, while the American Academy of Pediatrics now recommends that doctors offer weight loss pharmacotherapy to youths who fall in that camp. But so far, there's just been one major study of how Wegovy affects kids, a trial recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which had a pool of only about 200 participants. It's like a massively expensive Band-Aid. That's right. If you're mass prescribing this and making parents and kids feel like they're doing something but not changing their underlying nutrition, it's not going to solve the problem. Means said he'd rather see the government invest in things like revamping school lunches, which would target the source of all obesity, diet. But not everyone agrees obesity can be solved by proper nutrition. Meanwhile, body positivity is a nice slogan. And while Kim Kardashian uses it and puts chubby models into her skims, meanwhile, she is using some sort of rapid weight loss to fit into dresses, all to make us feel less than. It certainly doesn't contribute to my body positivity to see her at size zero, in spite of the fact that her bosom and her butt are not zeros at all. What are we doing? And what is the message we're sending to young girls and to women of all ages? Well, you know what it is. We went through this back when I was a kid. And now, here we go again. Only this time, the weight loss might actually kill us.